We've been talking on this subject, finding faith instead of fear. And we remember we talked about this morning, especially for those that weren't in here. Um, this is probably written sometime before David was anointed king, possibly even when he was fleeing the jealous rage of Saul. And so certainly, certainly there are circumstances in his life that fit what Psalm 27 is describing. It is thought that the main theme of this psalm, and I agree with this, is our response to fear. And Warren Wiersbe gives a good outline. I'll not use it, and I'll not even repeat it, but it, it's, I think it's useful to look at the subject of fear because we are living in a time in which things really do, if we're not careful, they'll engender a lot of fear in us if we're not careful. And... Uh, and so we're talking about finding faith instead of fear. And David divides really this psalm into two thoughts. The first is this one, what we may expect of God, what, we're, what we should expect of him, what he has set up for us, the expectations we should have of God and how that can help us find faith instead of fear. This morning we talked about his sufficiency. You can expect that God's going to be sufficient. In fact, the first name he gave, Moses, I am, speaks to that self-sufficiency. You know, our hope doesn't lie in what God does. Our hope lies in who he is. Everything that happens emanates from who he is. He is sufficient. He is sufficient. And then we talked about this morning, not just his sufficiency, but his protection. You have an, you have an expectation of him to protect you. He said he would. And thank the Lord for that. You have an expectation of placement. He has made you one of his own. Verse number 10, David says, When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up, foreshadowing that wonderful New Testament principle of adoption. Oh, aren't you glad for that? And then his healing, verse 14, touches on his healing. He said, He shall strengthen thy heart. That, what's that talking about? He's going to fill in those cracks. He's going to heal those wounds that are made in our heart when fear gets the best of us. And so uh, helping us find faith instead of fear is when we look to what we can expect of God. Some have advanced the theory that Psalm 27 is a compilation because they say no writer could swing back and forth between such perceived confidence and such deep concern. I don't see that at all. The truth is we've all been there. We've all swung on that pendulum, haven't we? We've all had those moments where we are on such a mountaintop we could swing over hell on a rotten corn stalk, you know? I mean, we're ready to take everything on. But then we've also seen that pendulum shift to where we don't even know if we're saved half the time, you know? We've all been there back and forth. It's part of the fallen human experience, Oops, I gave you the title too early, didn't I? Now I guess you'll just leave. Um, I think what David is doing is coming to this subject from all angles because that's the approach that's going to resonate with the most people. And so we see him on the second of these two perspectives. The first is what we can expect of God, but tonight we want to look at what God should expect of us. You say, what's that got to do with living without fear? Well, listen to this. When we live according to God's expectation of us, it further mitigates our fears because with each act of obedience, God promises a blessing. 
what do we take from that? An obedient life begets calm and peace, while a disobedient life begets concern and paranoia, doesn't it? Think about it. Remember when you were a kid? If you had done wrong, if you had disobeyed, even if your parents hadn't figured it out yet, you usually were a little bit less than calm, weren't you? Oh, they're on to me. Why do they look at me like that? You know, you're, you're, you're a little bit paranoid. You've got some fear because, because things aren't as they should be. If you're riding down the road and a policeman pulls in behind you, What's the first thing you do? You look at the speedometer, don't you? And if you are law-abiding, there's a certain peace that comes over you. Now, if you're like me, I still have a bit of paranoia because then I'm thinking, okay, is my brake light out? Are there warrants that I don't know about? You know, I start, I start thinking outside, you know, crazy stuff. But generally speaking, if we're obedient, we're much more at peace than when we're not. Well, the same is true spiritually. If I'm obedient, I'm going to enjoy a whole lot more peace, a whole lot more calm than when I'm disobedient. So if we'll obey God, if, if we'll live up to that which God expects of us, we'll find faith instead of fear. What God should expect of us. So, Father, would you help us as we look to that very important truth? Would you help me to preach the way you want me to, Lord, help me to do my very best. But, Lord, more than that, I need you to take control. I need you to have your way tonight. And I pray that Jesus will be lifted up in it. For it's in his name we ask these things. Amen. What God should expect of us. Let's look at what David has to say. Number one. If you want to have faith instead of fear, God has a right to expect of us single-mindedness. Look at verse number four. We'll be in verse four for the next three points. One thing have I desired of the Lord. One thing. Every pursuit that you have in your life has a one thing right? Um, if, you look at, if you look at sports, now, there are a lot of disciplines within a given sport, but everybody has that one thing they want to improve on. Everybody has that one thing that they really need to work on to raise everything to a higher level. There's always a one thing. In my preaching, I have a one thing. Obviously, my spiritual one thing is that God be pleased to preach, you know, you know but, but I'm talking about as far as technique and everything, my one thing that I want to do better than anything else is I want to stop getting off topic. I want to be more disciplined as a preacher. Preacher, you're not doing great with your one thing. I know. I'm working on it. It's only been 12 years, or 17, I guess, technically. So give me some time, will you? Everybody's got a one thing when it comes to some pursuit in your life. But when we're looking at your life as a whole, what's your one thing? You have one. What's your one thing? Now, here's where Christians especially tend to mess up. Almost without exception, our one thing is a good thing. But remember, good is the enemy 
of best. Well, my one thing is a happy marriage. Great. That's good. But that shouldn't be our one thing. My one thing is my relationship with my kids. Man, that's good. But it shouldn't be our one thing. My one thing is to work and and build up my my accounts in such a way that when I'm done here, I leave my family in a good place. That's good. No, that's noble, but that shouldn't be our one thing. As a pastor, what's your one thing, Andy? Boy, I want to see hundreds in the service every morning. That's good. But that better not be my one thing. In fact, let me give you another one that that shouldn't be my one thing. I want to see people saved every service. That's not the one thing for a pastor, no. You know what my one thing as a pastor is? To rightly divide the word of truth. That's got to be my one thing as a pastor. Because people can get saved under bad doctrine, can't they? But they can't grow under it. And, and, and God, God can save people in spite, in spite of all these other things. But if I'm up here preaching unsoundly, we got real problems. See, My number one priority as a Christian is to win people to Christ. But my number one priority as a pastor is to preach and teach the word of God. See, What's your one thing? When we look at our life as a whole, if our one thing is anything other than pleasing the Lord Jesus Christ preeminently, then we've got the wrong one thing. Because here's, here's, here's the deal, y'all. If we're pleasing the Lord Jesus Christ preeminently, then I'm the husband I ought to be. I'm the dad I ought to be. I'm the breadwinner that I ought to be. I'm the pastor I ought to be. I'm the preacher I ought to be. If I keep that one thing, the one thing, everything else is taken care of. Where would we be as a nation if we had a president who kept the right one thing? If we had people in Congress that kept the right one thing. If we had nine people sitting on the bench of the Supreme Court that kept the right one thing. What's your one thing? If it's anything but pleasing the Lord preeminently, our mind is divided. Spurgeon said this, divided aims tend to distraction, weakness, and disappointment. And he's right. Paul Paul says something that's pretty close to this. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do. One thing. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's his one thing. He goes on to say, let us therefore, as many as be perfect, if you would be mature, if you would be complete as a Christian, be thus minded. That should be your one thing too. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Paul saying the same thing David said. One thing. My one thing. Godly single-mindedness will do much to mitigate fear and develop faith in the life of a believer. Number two, what should God expect of me? Single-mindedness. Number two, sanctification. What's sanctification mean? It means to be set apart from something and unto something. As Christians, we are set apart from the world and unto God. 
we, we have such a misunderstanding about sanctification. Sometimes we tend to look at sanctification as limiting and all the things that we don't get to do. And that's completely the wrong way to look at it. Since October 10th of 2009, I am no longer allowed to date any eligible woman that's out there. Do you know that? No longer, the truth is I wasn't allowed before then either. But legally and spiritually, that opportunity ended. Now, what would you think of me if I'm just walking around? Man, that lady, that lady that's over there, boy, she's a nice-looking lady. And I bet we'd get along real well at, because of marriage, I can't date her. You'd look at me and rightfully you would say, what a jerk. What a loser. You should feel that way. And yet Christians do it all the time, don't they? Man, I sure would love to be involved in that, but I'm a Christian. No, sanctification is not about what you don't get to do. It's about everything you gain in Jesus Christ. I belong to that woman sitting on the back, not the row, she's on the wall. (laughs) She's sitting in the latecomer section. That I belong to her, and she belongs to me. And can I tell you, that's a good thing. That's a really good thing. That's well beyond anything I could ever deserve. Can I tell you something? I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And even still, he belongs to me. I am my beloved, and he is mine. (laughs) That's a good thing. And David says, if you want to have faith instead of fear, then you need to get about the business of making sure you are set apart unto him and away from everything else. Let's, Let's see it. Verse 4, we're still there. One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. It's interesting. What David's talking about in that moment is physically not possible. First of all, He wasn't a priest. He wasn't of the tribe of Levi. He wasn't allowed in the Lord's house. And the only time that he came anywhere near the Lord's house, except for special feast days and things like that, was the Sabbath. But David sees past all of that. He sees past the typology and and, and the pictures and the, and the, 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 the foreshadowing. And David gets down to the crux of the matter. I desire, I'm not talking about Sabbath. I'm not talking about the restrictions of the tabernacle. I'm not talking about Levite versus Judahite. I want more than anything else to be set apart unto God. I want to be his and I want to be with him all the time. By the way, that's always been God's plan. So many would restrict their worship to the religious trappings of the day. I've got news for you, friend. You are not just gods when you're sitting in this pew. You're gods at work. You're gods at home. You're gods on vacation. You're gods at the beach. You're gods at the lake. You're always his. David's desire was to be set apart unto God perpetually. What happens? Psalm 4, verse 1. David says, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me 
when I was in distress. Does that sound like fear to you? Yeah. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. What's the answer for that distress? Verse 3. But know that the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself. If you watch your kids, if you're in a sketchy situation, usually, especially your younger kids, as long as they've got a firm grasp on mom or dad's hand, they're they're cool. They're safe. They're good. Because they know, as long as I stay close to mom and dad, I'm all right. I think most people's kids do this to some degree. Both of ours have done it. Claire's well past it now, thankfully. But every night, different times during the night, Asher will sneak in and climb in bed between climb in bed with me and my wife. Now, if he can finagle it, he'll get in between us. Yeah, you. But if not, he'll be satisfied just to slip in on the side. In fact, last night, he came in early. He came in before Crystal came in. I was already in bed. Crystal was down fiddling with something, and he came in and got in bed. Crystal comes walking in. She said, what's he doing here? I said, we got an early check-in. <laughs> Admittedly, that used to kind of get on my nerves a little bit because he makes himself at home. We have a king-size bed, and it might as well be a twin, because by the time he's done, we're on opposite sides of the bed, and he is perpendicular to us, forming the letter H. (laughs) And that used to get on my nerves a little bit, but you know, something I saw changed my perspective on it. A teacher did an assignment in her class with kids six, seven years old. And she told them to, she assigned them an emotion and told them to draw a picture describing that emotion. And so if it was happy, you know, you got a smiley face, you know, dancing around or whatever. Sad, you got, you know. But this one kid, she assigned an emotion to And he drew a picture of mom and dad. Dad's laying here. Mom's laying here. And he's in the middle of them. Do you know what his emotion that he was assigned was? Safe. Maybe the reason you're afraid is you're not close enough to the father. Maybe it's time to sneak away from whatever you've carved out for yourself and get back up next to him again. Sanctification. Set apart unto him. What should God expect of us? If we're going to have faith over fear, we're talking about single-mindedness. We're talking about sanctification. You know what else you need? You need sensitivity. 
verse 4. We're still there. One thing have I desired of the Lord. That's, that's the singleness of mine. That will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That's sanctification. Now listen to this. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Perhaps more than any other Old Testament saint, I think that David has a spiritual sensitivity to see what I would call the end game of God's plan. He sees beyond the law. He sees beyond the Old Testament economy. And he sees the very heart of God. And that shouldn't surprise us because what does God say about David? He's a man after my own heart. He starts out by saying, to behold the beauty of the Lord. Here's the problem, David. You can't. What did God say in Exodus 33? Nobody can look upon me and live. Moses, all Moses saw was that element of God's glory that he left behind after he had passed by. And Moses came down from the mountain shining so bright they had to put a veil over him. David's saying, I want to see you, Lord. I want to look right in your eyes. I want to take in all of your beauty. And David had the sensitivity to the, the, the truth of God's word to know, I may not can do that now, but one day I will. He goes on to say, to inquire in his temple. You understand the temple doesn't exist yet. We're still dealing with a tabernacle. In fact, at this particular moment, we're, we're likely still dealing with a tent at Shiloh. Because if it were the tabernacle proper, the, the Ark of the Covenant doesn't come and go as it did then. They weren't allowed to go in there and get it. David sees past that. He has a sensitivity that sees past all of that and sees where the heart of God is, that this is God's ultimate plan. God has always intended for his people to see him. How do I know? John said this, 1 John 3, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. Watch this. For we shall see him as he is. David saw that long before John did. See, because he was sensitive to the teachings of God's Spirit. Yes, God's Spirit did not yet indwell people. That doesn't happen until Pentecost. But he did come upon people. And he did teach people. 
And he taught David a lot. What about the temple? There's no temple yet. And I don't think David's even looking to Solomon's temple. I think he's looking past that. You know what I think he's looking to? What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you? What ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For you're bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. But then he looks beyond that. God's not going to need a building. I'm going to be his temple. But then beyond that, Revelation 21. I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. When the choir sings, is he worthy? One of the most moving lines in the whole thing. Does our God intend to dwell again with us? He does. David had a certain sensitivity. And if you'll have that sensitivity to the ultimate plans of God, it will mitigate your fear and build your faith. What should God expect of us? He should expect single-mindedness. He should expect sanctification. He should expect sensitivity. You know what else he has a right to expect? That's submission. Verse 8. David says, When thou, God, saidest, Seek ye my face... My heart said unto thee, thy face, Lord, will I seek. I will do exactly what you said for me to do. It's elementary, but worth repeating. Immediate and complete obedience dispels fear. Hold your place here and go to Daniel chapter 3, would you? I love this illustration. Some of us have this idea that I will obey God when I stop being scared. No. You'll never stop being scared unless you start obeying God. You've got Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Nebuchadnezzar has erected this obscenely grotesque statue It's completely out of proportion because everything the world creates to try and mimic God is grotesque and out of proportion. And his command is, at the sound of the music, everybody bow down and worship it. And if you don't, you'll be cast into a fiery furnace. And so they're out on the plane. You have to believe that Daniel is away on assignment. There's no way in the world that the Daniel we know from Scripture would have bowed down to this thing. He's not mentioned, so I have to assume that he is gone. He is off on assignment. But there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The music plays. And all across the plain, the thousands, perhaps even millions of people all bow down. But look there, just sticking out like sore thumbs, three guys still standing. 
Nebuchadnezzar's hot. Brings them in, sees who they are. Okay. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we don't want to... We don't want to move too fast on this thing. Maybe you didn't understand. I'm telling you, bow down when you hear the music or you're going in the fiery furnace. You got it? Yep. We got it. Now look at what they say here. Daniel chapter 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we're not careful to answer thee in this matter. You say you're going to throw us in the fiery furnace for, for some context. Verse 17. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of thine hand. But three of the most significant words in this whole thing start verse 18. But if not. I have no problem believing there's a bit of nervousness here. But if not. Be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. I ask you, which came first, obedience or peace? Obedience. When did they get the peace? They got the peace when they got in the fire. Uh, Can can I just take a minute and just elaborate a bit because I love this story? When they took these fellows out of the burning, burning fiery furnace, no harm had come to them whatsoever, none. The Bible says none. They were bound hand and foot and thrown. Now let's take somebody in here. Let's bind them hand and foot. Let's grab each side of them and let's heave them just across the floor. Will that result in some injury? Almost certainly. But the Bible says they came out of there with no injury in addition to the fire. The only conclusion that I can make, Brother Branson, is that fourth man in the fire was already there, and when they got chucked in, he caught them. And sometimes, the only way you get closer to God is to go where he already is, and the only way for you to get where he already is is to be obedient. I've told you this story before. We candidated here. Second time we came to candidate, I had no read at all on what was going to happen. And so I sat down with my wife at the hotel Sunday afternoon, second time we were here. I said, honey, I got no idea if anything's going to happen tonight. I don't know. But if by chance... They ask me what we're going to do. What do we do? And she said, have we completely given up on Florida? No, she didn't say that. 
She, being the godly wife that she is, said something on the lines of, I'll follow you wherever God leads you. What she was really doing was putting the pressure back on me. (laughs) And so we prayed, we talked, and we followed the steps that we've used and uh, taught other people to do. The first thing we do is go to the Word of God. Is there anything biblical that is a reason we shouldn't come here? There was nothing biblical. We had sought godly counsel. And, of course, our godly counselors, well, I don't know the church. I don't know what to tell you to do. Okay, so we keep moving. Circumstances. Are there any overwhelming circumstances that would say this is not a good fit? There wasn't at that point. Okay. So we had the conversation. I preached that night. Brother Wright, many of you remember Brother Charles Wright. He was the head of the pulpit committee. Brother Wright sits me down afterwards. He goes, I got to ask you something, preacher. I said, yes, sir. If we decide to vote on you, what's your answer? Um, well, and I hesitated. He goes, well, I ask you because it'd be a shame to go through all this and then we vote on you and you say no. I, yeah, yeah, I can understand that. I said, Brother Wright, the, the best I can tell from what I know right now, I see no reason we wouldn't say yes. Good. Okay. Let's go to Wendy's. Um, <laughs> do you know when I had peace about Fellowship Baptist Church? When Brother Wright called me, Brother Davis, the church has voted, and he gave me the number. I forget what it was, but. I'm still trying to figure out which three of you voted again. No. <laughs> um, I have no idea. I don't care. Um, we've called you to be our pastor. Will you come? And the moment I said yes, peace. Now, here's where we mess up, Christians. We tend to demand the peace before we make the decision. And I got news for you. The devil can counterfeit that peace. Your own mentality can counterfeit that peace. Your flesh can counterfeit that peace. But I'll tell you what they can't counterfeit. They cannot counterfeit obedience to the word of God. I've I've had young ladies, friends of mine, tell me that they had peace that God had brought a man into their life who was still married to somebody else. That ain't peace. You will not stop being afraid until you learn to obey God when he tells you to obey him. Submission. Let me move quickly. These last three points aren't as well developed, and now I see why, because God knew I wouldn't get off submission very quickly. Something else God demands is self-awareness. Verse 11. Teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me in a plain path because of mine enemies. Deliver me not over unto the will of mine enemies. That's an important phrase. For false witnesses are risen up against me, and such as breathe out cruelty. 
David expressed a humble self-awareness in verse number 11. Let's read it again. Teach me thy way, O Lord, and lead me in a plain path. He admits that he does not know the path and he needs it to be plain. What is he saying? Lord, not only do I need you to show me the path I should take, I'm I'm not very smart. I need you to make it clear to me. I need you to make it plain to me. Do not leave any room for me to deviate from it. I am aware. I know me. And I've prayed this many, many times. Lord, you know how I am. You know how I have a tendency to get things wrong. I need you to make this path plain. Now, this is interesting. Watch this. He says, lead me in a plain path because of mine enemies. Deliver me not over unto the will of mine enemies. What's their will? I don't think it's their will that he dies. I think it's their will that he missed the path. Why? Because look what it says. For false witnesses have risen up against me. False witnesses don't just testify against you. False witnesses testify in a way to get you to go a wrong direction. It's, it's called bad counsel. David's very self-aware here. And much unneeded fear, listen to this, much unneeded fear is generated when we place the burden of direction on ourselves. What's the Bible say? Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. And lean not into thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Not your steps on the path, he'll direct the path. See? We dispel fear when we learn and practice that God is responsible to have the answers, not us. What does God expect of us? Single-mindedness, sanctification, sensitivity, submission, self-awareness, steadfastness. Verse 13. I had fainted. How many Christians could stop right there? How's things been going? I just fainted. I quit. I gave up. Keep reading. I had fainted. Unless I had seen the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Is that what your Bible says? No. There's, there's something in between, isn't it? Unless I believed. See, it's one thing to believe when things are going great, but can you believe God when they're not? Can you believe God that they will? Can you believe God there may come a day that gas isn't $3 a gallon? Can you believe God there may come a day that we get a decent leader one way or the other? Can you believe God? Listen, I don't know what to think about any of that mess, but I tell you what I do believe God about. Ultimately, I've read the end of the story. I know how it finishes. And if I don't keep my eyes steadfastly and believe that God will come through on his promises, then you know what I'll do? I'll faint. I'll quit. I'll give up. Too many faint with fear because they just don't stick with it. Faith is built and fear is dispelled when we remain steadfast. Last one. God should expect of us single-mindedness, sanctification, sensitivity, submission, self-awareness, steadfastness, and he expects service. Verse 14, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, 
I say, on the Lord. I tell you what, waiting is not. Well, God's going to do something. We're not talking about DMV kind of waiting, y'all. We're not talking about I'll be ready in a minute kind of waiting. Notice I didn't assign a gender to that. We're not talking about when's preacher going to be done kind of waiting. The word wait here has the idea of a patient, active expectancy. Foster and Bethany are waiting. They have been for several months now. They will be for a few more. I promise you, and those of us that have been through this know what I'm talking about. It's not just to sit around, oh, it's this baby going to come. Now, there are those moments, I'm sure. But especially Foster. No, as we draw closer to the day, Foster more and more is going to be like, what can I do? What you need? Have we packed yet? Have we got the bag ready? Is the car full of gas? Foster, it's going to be a couple months. Yeah, I know, but is the car full of gas? Are we good? Are we ready? Why? Why? He's waiting. But it's, a, it's an expectancy. And he's active. Jesus is coming back soon. And there's far too many Christians that treat that like this. Ugh. Even so, come Lord Jesus. When somebody waits on you in a restaurant, is that the kind of service you want? Although it seems like that's what we get. We went to a restaurant today. By the way, fast food does not exist anymore. I'll not say, I'll not say which restaurant it was because you might have some relative that works there. Or they might be watching online. But we went to a restaurant today. And we ordered what I thought was a pretty basic order. Enough to feed our family which on a Sunday afternoon, that should be expected. We waited in the drive-thru. I timed it. Four and a half hours. No, it wasn't that long. <laughs> but man, it, I'll tell you this, I got through two Sudokus before I got my food. I don't like that kind of waiting, do you? But when somebody's waiting on you in the right way, they're active. Is there anything I can get you? Would you like some more tea? Interested in dessert? Can I take this plate for you? There's activity there. What should we be doing when we're waiting on the Lord? Lord, what can I do for you right now? Lord, is there something you want of me right now? Is there somebody you'd like me to speak to? Is there some lesson you have for me? Lord, I know you're coming, and I expect it, but, but I need to be busy while, you know, occupy till I come. That's what he said. Service. You know what I found? When I'm busy serving the Lord, I don't have much time to be afraid. But it does build my faith. 
And all God's people said, so what? Wrong, so what? <laughs> Honestly, y'all, it's, it's pretty much the same so what as this morning. There comes a point. Yes, we are overcome with, with sudden circumstances that, that scare us, and we have to process that and deal with that. I get it. But there comes a point that fear becomes a decision. We decide whether or not we're going to stay in it, whether or not we're going to live in it. Just like you decide whether or not you're going to have faith. Faith is not the absence of doubt. It's doing the right thing in spite of it. So how in the world do I make that leap from fear to faith? Well, the first thing you do is you understand what you can expect of God. You can expect that he's going to be sufficient in everything you need. You can expect that he's going to protect you. He's already placed you as one of his sons. He's going to heal you when you're hurting. Expect that. But then understand there's some things he expects of you, and if you'll obey, that will build that faith, single-mindedness, sanctification, sensitivity, submission, self-awareness, steadfastness, and service. Finding faith instead of fear. Let's stand together, shall we?